and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. I'm first this week. And I have a interesting older case um, about Mary McKnight. I don't know if you've ever heard of her before. I saw this book. This is what got me interested. It's called... Oh, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you what the title is, because that will give it away. <laughs> you get to wait. I'll tell you the book at the end. All right. So, Mary Murphy was born in Canada in 1857 to Isaiah Murphy and Sarah Timmons. Her family crossed the border when Mary was 13, and they settled in Alpena County, where her father worked at a sawmill until he was able to purchase land in Kalkaska County. I feel like I need to say that with the Michigan accent. Kalkaska. All right. Kalkaska. Kalkaska. As a teen, Mary left home to work in a boarding house owned by William and Sopronia Leach in Alpena. That's a name I've never encountered before. Um... Yeah, so I'm guessing on that pronunciation. There she worked as a domestic servant, doing laundry for other boarders employed at a local sawmill. Mary eventually married local painter James D. Ambrose on April 19, 1876, when Mary was 19. They had two daughters, Minnie and May. In 1882, four-year-old Minnie went to visit her grandmother in Monroe, where she caught diphtheria and died. In 1884, while traveling to Saginaw, Mary and May became ill, and while Mary recovered, May did not. May Ambrose likely died of diphtheria like her sister. Overall, Mary had and lost five children. A few years later, in 1887, James Ambrose fell ill and died. And this is where it starts to get weird. According to witnesses, James's death was brutal and he thrashed in agony with his limbs twitching in spasmodic convulsions. Mary received $2,000 from James's life insurance policy. Now widowed, Mary moved in with James's business partner, another James, James Ernest McKnight, and his wife. In July 1887, McKnight's wife suddenly became ill, suffering from convulsions. Her sister, Gib Teeple, rushed to Alpena to be by her sister's side, leaving her baby in Mary's care. Mrs. McKnight died the night her sister arrived, and the next day the baby was suddenly sick as well. The baby suffered from convulsions before dying. Mary then went to live with her sister, Margaret Chalker, in Saginaw. James McKnight had fallen for Mary, because of course he did, and the two planned to wed. Mary spent the three weeks with her sister, her husband William, and their three children. After Mary wed the second James, she stayed close to her sister, taking the train to visit her family. During one of those visits, her 13-year-old niece, Eliza Chalker, became sick after having tea with her Aunt Mary. Witnesses later said the girl suffered from convulsions. She died on May 3rd, 1892. A doctor said her death was the result of congestive grip. <laughs> Don't ask me what that means. Yeah. Because Dr. Google found nothing for me about what that meant. <laughs> Dr. Google. 
On February 18, 1893, Mary's 18-year-old sister, Sarah Murphy, traveled to Saginaw to visit with her fiancé. While having afternoon tea with her sister, Sarah's body began to twitch and convulse. She died four and a half hours later. Lots of death follows Mary wherever she goes, apparently. I wonder if it is, I'm calling it out now, rat poisoning. You shall see. <laughs> in 1894, the McKnights moved to a farm James purchased in Grayling. No mysterious deaths followed Mary. However, that changed on November 12, 1898, when James McKnight suddenly became ill after eating dinner that Mary had sent him in the field as he worked. James had similar convulsion symptoms as the others in her family. However, after two days, he began to improve, and the doctor who was called to help returned to town. That same night, James McKnight relapsed and died. Mary told the doctor it happened so quickly that she didn't have time to call for help. The doctor listed the immediate cause of death as exhaustion brought on by paralysis. After the funeral, Mary collected $2,000 from James McKnight's life insurance. Six years later, in 1900, Mary heard that a friend from Saginaw died following a surgery, leaving her grandmother, Mrs. Schneeberger, sick with grief. Mary traveled to care for the woman, and while there, Mrs. Schneeberger suddenly died, followed by her daughter, Mrs. Curry. Despite the grim raper that apparently followed Mary around, she continued helping her friends and neighbors at their request. It's a big oops on their part. A friend, Anna Jensen, became ill and had to go to the hospital located in Grayling. Anna asked Mary for help in caring for her six-year-old daughter, Dorothy. Dorothy became sick on March 28, 1902, while playing with her friends. The kids she played with said she was trembling and frothing at the mouth. Dorothy Jensen was dead by the time a local physician arrived at four that afternoon. The doctor couldn't find the cause and listed overexertion skipping rope as a contributing factor. Good old time in medicine. And what are kids yeah. supposed to do? Like, like that's what's so funny is everybody talks about, you know, back in the day, oh, kids didn't have TVs, kids didn't have phones. They got out and did stuff. But that back then, they're blaming kids doing stuff. What do you... What do you want them to do? Not exist? I'm so confused. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So during the winter of 1903, Mary moved into her mother's home in Springfield Township. Within three months, three more were dead, including her brother John, his wife Gertrude, and their daughter Ruth. Gertrude and Ruth died on April 20th, 1903. Isaiah John Murphy died on May 2nd. 1903. All had the strange symptoms and sudden illness and death. It was the death of John that finally brought on suspicion of foul play. John's body was exhumed on May 29, 1903. Without waiting for the report, Kalkaska prosecutor Ernest Smith ordered Sheriff John W. Creighton to arrest Mary and bring her in for questioning. On May 31, 1903, Mary was arrested at Walton Junction, a connection point for the Grand Rapids and Indiana Railroad as she headed for Traverse City, and she was brought back to Kalkaska for questioning. On June 9, 1903, Mary confessed to accidentally giving Ruth Murphy, 
Ruth. I've, <laughs> I've a lift now. <laughs> yeah. Murphy. Um, on June 9th, 1903, Mary confessed to accidentally giving Ruth Murphy strychnine on accident. Oh, an accident. Yeah. That's just accident. She said she then gave Gertrude and John pills containing a medicinal amount of strychnine to comfort them and that the deaths were accidental. That, however, didn't explain the massive dose in John's stomach. In Mary's statement, she stated how it was an accident at, at the end said, and this is what got me. I love John. He was always a good brother to me. I loved Gertie, too. I was sorry to see John go, but I suppose it was all for the best. John has come to me and Gertie, too, since I've been in jail, and they have told me that they forgive me. I told the Lord all about it, too, and I am sure that he has forgiven me. Bitch. <laughs> what the hell? Lady's crazy. That's all there is to that one. Like, it was an accident. It was best that he went. Like, who says that? You killed him. It always makes me concerned, like, hearing about the people that were seemingly, like, actually mentally ill in some capacity. Because when I was a when I was a kid, I do remember I had some friends. My mom was friends with their parents since, like, before I was born. And so they knew me from birth. And then I knew their kids. And we were outside, and I was a cheerleader, so I was teaching them some cheers, kids doing kids stuff. And she came out the door, and we weren't even being loud. We were just playing. She came out the door, yelled obscenities at us, flipped us off, kicked her foot out the door, shook her butt at us, and went inside. And we were like, oh. we're very confused. And, like, her parents were like, get inside, you know. Yeah. They, I guess, knew her as being mentally ill. And when we were sitting in the living room then, because after that they're like, stay inside, we watched her walking out to her truck, just literally yelling, like talking to herself. Um, Don't touch my truck. You know, I told you already and nobody's around her. Yeah. So it's like before hands free, anything like that. <laughs> we had house phones. <laughs> um, so it's just like every t I'm like, it makes me wonder, like, maybe where that person was. It makes whenever I, ever he I hear things of people being like, oh. You know, this happened or these came to me or I spoke with God. Well, with everything that it's happened, she couldn't have been right in the head anyway. Because you would have to yeah. notice the pattern for what she was doing. And even if she's like, oh, it's medicine, because strychnine was medicine at the time. But, you know, small, small amounts. Yeah. Then what, what kind of made this insane for Michigan at the time was that newspapers started catching on to the story and a New York Times article from June 11th 1903 talked about the case it says a report from Kalkaska Michigan says that Mrs. Mary McKnight has confessed to the public prosecutor to the murder of her brother John Murphy Gertrude Murphy his wife and their three months old baby yeah Ruth was three months old the murders were committed with strychnine. Subsequent investigation shows that eight other persons, besides the three included in the confession, and all relatives or close friends of Mrs. McKnight, have died in the past 15 years under suspicious circumstances. 
And I would have more of that article, but there was a paywall and I'm not about that life. So. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. I'm not either. You want me to pay you to keep reading? No, that's okay. I'll just use that. Newspapers, including the Detroit News Tribune, started referring to Mary McKnight as the Michigan Borgia and compared her to the Renaissance Lucretia Borgia, who was famous for poisoning her enemies. The newspaper ran a front page article titled Death in Her Train, and it said more than a dozen persons related to or intimately associated with her have died, has inspired the suspicion that she is, after all, a modern Borgia and that the destruction of human life has become with her a mania. The Evening Record ran an article that said, Death has walked in her footsteps and torn from her many of her closest relatives and dearest friends. It would seem that the bestowal of her love upon a human being was to be punished by the striking down of the object of her affection. That writer thought her misfortunes were being used against her. Sarah, Dan, and Charles Murphy put forward a theory that John Murphy poisoned his wife and child before taking his own life. Friends and family tried to proclaim her innocence. However, Sheriff John W. Creighton said, That's all rot. It's not even a possibility in view of the evidence we have picked up in the past few days. The prosecutor spoke about the case while evidence was being collected and essentially said the remaining members of her family were lucky to be alive. No kidding. Judge Chittenden wanted to make sure the media didn't affect the fairness of the trial, so the location of the trial was changed, and it took a while to select a jury. On December 1st through 9th, 1903, Mary McKnight was on trial in Cadillac. A theory for why Mary took the lives of those around her? Mary liked to attend funerals. Irish wakes were a social event, and Mary liked them so much that she found ways to make them happen. However, she did receive money from life insurance policies for some, like with her husband James. However, Mary also tried to claim her brother's life insurance and his property. During her trial, the prosecution claimed that leading up to the deaths of her brother and his family, Mary fraudulently tripled their mortgage from $200 to $600, and with the beneficiaries gone... Gertrude and Ruth, Mary could foreclose on the property. After her brother John's death, she brought the raised mortgage to the county offices for recording to begin taking steps in claiming the property and then asked about his insurance policy. Witnesses said John died from an overdose of strychnine and witness Joseph Battenfield said he had purchased strychnine for Mary in Fife Lake. However, later in the trial, the defense's argument was that Mary had several times the amount of the life insurance policy in the bank from policies of her deceased husbands, which doesn't sound like a good defense to me. (laughs) She couldn't possibly want this life insurance money. She has it from her other dead husbands that died mysteriously. (laughs) Good good defense. Yes, of course. She couldn't possibly want more money. Yikes. Oh... To further proof of Mary's wrongdoing, John was exhumed, and Dr. Parasol said his body had the textbook example of strychnine poisoning. Mary's brothers, however, said John suffered from asthma, and when he couldn't breathe, his fits would look something similar with spasming. In the past, strychnine was available in pill form and was used to treat many human ailments, 
so he could have taken it and accidentally overdosed. Today, strychnine is used primarily as a pesticide, particularly to kill rats. So you were very... (laughs) Modern use, you were spot on. (laughs) On the final day of Mary's trial, the jury was split on Mary's guilt. Five of them thought there was a lack of motive and wanted an acquittal. Mary's sister, Margaret Chalker, was the only relative who seemed convinced Mary was guilty. She visited Mary and supposedly said, This will probably be our last moments alone. They will probably send you to prison for life. Now I want to know why you killed them. Mary's reply was, I have nothing to say. I kind of hope she throw a punch her, but they're too... <laughs> they're too much like ladies back then. Just, um, wow. I can't imagine. That's crazy. Anyway. After deliberating for 28 hours on the afternoon of December 10th, 1903, the jury reached a decision, guilty. When asked if Mary had any objection to the sentence, Mary muttered, I did not mean them any harm. Which, to me, uh, doesn't sound like she's saying she was innocent and wrongly charged. That's more like a... Just that she didn't mean to kill them. Oopsie daisy. I didn't mean to kill them, but I totally killed them. I didn't mean for them to stop breathing. It's just what happened after the fits, you know? Just people get fits around me when I give them my own medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Judge Chittenden said to Mary, you've been found guilty of the crime of murder. And what makes it worse is that the victim is your brother. In pronouncing sentence on you, I have no choice in the matter. But had I the power to lighten the sentence, I should give you the full extent of the law. Mrs. McKnight, the sentence of this court is that you spend the remainder of your natural life in the state's prison at Jackson. The next day, on December 11th, 1903, Mary was escorted by Sheriff Huckleberry on a train south to Jackson, where she was delivered to the Detroit House of Corrections. After serving 18 years on June 19, 1920, Mary McKnight was released on parole. Mary died a few years later. It isn't known exactly where she was buried, just that she is not in the family plot in Springfield Cemetery. And interestingly, around the time of Mary's trial, three other women were arrested or on trial for poisoning and murder. These included Katie Ludwig, Emma Stewart, and Caroline Collins. And if you want to know more about them, their information is included in the book about Mary McKnight that I used for research on this episode. It's called Michigan Strychnine Saint, The Curious Case of Mrs. Mary McKnight by Tobin T. I'm going to butcher this last name. Book? B-U-H-K. And then some of that's from New York, New York Times article, um, Death on the Mitten by Tom Carr. Petoskey News had a story on it, and then LostInMichigan.net had a brief thing on Mary McKnight. That made me question, though, if there was, like, a time period that we don't realize of, like, a second coming of something like Akotafana. Have you heard of Akotafana? Okay, so I watch um, Bailey Syrian. And on YouTube, and she's phenomenal. And she she does, like, Murder Mystery Mondays. 
And she did one on this lady, like, way back in the day. I think she was in Italy. Um, she was creating what she made look like perfume or whatever that women could keep on their nightstand that oh, could yeah, kill the men in their that. lives. And it, like, I mean, hundreds of men. Yeah. Like, dead. And everything was going great until one person had a conscience after they killed yeah. their husband. And so then she got, but like there was like, it made me like think like with all those women all having cases around the same time. It was a lot of strict nine. Yeah. (sighs) Made me go, was there a second coming of something like (laughs) Akatofana? (laughs) Or how she says it, Akatofana. Well, I, (laughs) I think that back in the day when poisons were so readily available, and maybe not being able to be detected by doctors at the time, it'd probably be a lot easier yeah. to off someone with, you know, all of the poison options <laughs> that were out there, really. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not a short list. No. Especially when not. it's something like, oh, I take a little bit of strychnine in these pills. And the book talked to about she made her own. So she may have, some of the theories was it was accidentally putting too much in the pills. Some was she did it on purpose because she's a psychopath. Um, she liked funerals. I think there's seven or eight theories on why yeah, that's she so, did it. That's so strange to me. Like, who enjoys a good funeral? Yeah. Like, like, um. Like what kind the, of well, the worst part of that for me was you just kill babies and little kids, too, just because are you bored? Like, why? Like, I'm going to get I got the theory of getting rid of the the wife and the daughter so she could try and claim his property. But he also had a daughter from a previous marriage that would have gotten everything anyway. And there was all kinds of disputes with the family over the property because they're saying, like, in the divorce, he gave the property to his brother so it wouldn't be one of his assets. It's like, oh, men were doing divorce shady <laughs> shady shit even back then. Like, this isn't my property anymore. Oh, it's yeah. my brother's. And he was supposed to sell it back to him after a certain amount of time or something. But then there was no record of it with the deeds. So even if they did sign something, they never recorded it in court. Is, just said yeah. that it was so oh yeah he owns it now That's yeah they didn't bring works. anything to be recorded in court to show that it was the brothers so it's the, the, the whole book I thought I would be bored reading it because with some of those type of books you're like okay this is dry but <laughs> he wrote it really good it's like bam one thing after another <laughs> Like, and while we're, while we're talking about this trial, check out these three other women that were also around the same time <laughs> in trouble for uh, poisoning their spouse. So I um, was looking on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and I have Leslie Allen Williams, um, serial killer, rapist, and necrophile. Oh. Leslie Allen Williams, yeah. I don't like this already. Was born, (laughs) exactly, on July 4th, 1953 in Detroit, Michigan. 
William's mother was a rather terrible mother and neglectful. So he was sent to and raised by his grandparents. His first arrest was in 1970 when he was just 17 years old for breaking into a home in his neighborhood. He served only one year before getting out and continuing down the path he had begun on. Over the next 12 years, Williams was repeatedly arrested for crimes that continued to increase in severity. Now, of course, I would think, like a rational person, that he gets sentenced and stays in prison for a long time. Um, but do you think that happened? No. No, of course it didn't. No, 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 it didn't. And because the police didn't seem to pay attention to what was going on, in September of 1983, Williams was arrested for sexually assaulting a woman in her home, which resulted in him being sentenced to 20 years in prison. Because, you know, his crimes are increasing. Ever, the severity is going up. Why don't we lock him behind bars? No, no, no. Let it get worse. Yeah. So in 1990, after Williams served eight years in prison for the rape, shocker, he was granted parole, sentenced to 20, spent eight. Wow. I would have never thought the justice system would have would fail in such a manner. <laughs> Who would have thunk? <laughs> and of course, nine months later, he killed his first victim. Of course. 18-year-old Cami Villanueva in her Oakland County home. He raped, killed, then buried her body in a shallow grave. Fifteen days later, on September 29th, 1991, Williams attacked a pair of sisters, 14-year-old Melissa Urban and 16-year-old Michelle Urban. The two young girls were walking at night when Williams attacked. He raped and killed the two, then put their bodies in his car, where he then drove to a secluded area and dug two shallow graves. Oh. Of course, because he always seems to have to increase his severity in some way, before burying them, he states that he had sex with their dead bodies. Oh, no. <sighs> I don't feel good anymore. <laughs> I mean, oh. raping and killing a 14 and 16-year-old could... You think, what can get yeah. worse? Let's just add to it. Five months later, um, five months after the attack on the Urban Sisters, on January 4, 1992, Williams raped and killed 15-year-old Cynthia, Cynthia Marie Jones. Just like the girls before her, she was buried in a shallow grave. They didn't say whether or not anything happened after the fact. But one can only assume since he did it with the previous. In four months and 20 days after the murder of Cynthia Marie Jones, Williams attempted to rape a woman after taking her from a cemetery. Classy. Witnesses to this attack called the police and Williams was arrested and taken into custody, where he then later confessed to the four murders he had committed. Over the following three weeks, he showed police where he had buried all the victims. So, thankfully, the families at least got that much. This case was uh, eventually made headlines 
and questions were then raised about Michigan's parole system. Because Understandable. <laughs> right. The family of Melissa and Michelle Urban blamed the parole board for the deaths of their daughters, which, yeah, not just the parole in my opinion, as it seems the entire police department really dropped the ball on this, which isn't that surprising. As much as I want it to be, it seems to be a common theme in these types of cases. Williams was sentenced to life imprisonment for the four murders and the attempted rape. As of September 2021, Leslie Allen Williams is unfortunately still alive, serving his sentence at the Carson City Correctional Facility. Facility. Ooh, can't talk. <laughs> but there wasn't much on it. It didn't go. I couldn't find any, like, real backstory, anything. It just seemed pretty cut and dry with this case. Um but could have all been avoided. Ugh, that's awful. But I hate that. It seems to be, like I said, it seems to be like a common theme with these episodes and these types of cases. Like someone gets arrested. Oh, gets out early. Why? Or... Oh, they're rested, but then just let go because they yeah. seem nice. Gotta make more room in the prisons for the other guys. Yeah. Uh, and then I could go into that where it's like, yeah, but they're making room for the guys who got caught, caught, caught smoking a joint. Gotta throw them in jail for 80 years. But the guy that raped two chicks back in 82, after two weeks, throw him on the road. Yeah. He's like, there's a big difference. <laughs> In the crimes, maybe, just maybe, if we switched that, things would get better. <laughs> like, yeah. Ah. Or do something, because part of the problem, too, is there's a lot of mentally ill people in there because there's mm. nowhere else to send them. Because Reagan they shut down the all the mental health institutions yeah. in what, the 80s? Yeah. Thanks, Reagan. So maybe we should start bringing that that back. <laughs> yeah, plus mental health only just recently started being taken yeah. serious. Like, I mean, as kids, how many times like, were we told, you're not depressed, you're a child. Oh, you sad? Oh, poor thing. Go outside and play. Yep. Boomer generation. Get tough it out. <laughs> This told that a lot that it just like, you know, now we have names for anxiety and depression that yeah. weren't really talked about back then. And, you know, now things are just starting. It seems to be taken into a level of being taken yeah. serious. More is being studied. So more is being learned every day. More is being learned about how our brains even work. As people do, like, MRI studies and study brain patterns and, you know, what does a brain look like when your hormones are doing this thing or when your, you know, your chemicals in your body are off? What does that look like in the brain? So, yeah. I mean, I'm glad medical science is <laughs> advancing, but the brain is also a tricky thing, too. It's like, how, how do you know? How do you do things? But, you know. 
take take your medicine, kids. <laughs> if you're if you're given a, a prescription to something to help you, I mean, you know, take take them. <laughs> I was gonna say I feel called out because I need to be on medicine. <laughs> like la 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 me not taking them <laughs> anyway but i'll psa but i am not one of these guys yeah so well i'll good. say psa for anybody that's you know taking medicine for anything like that you wouldn't ignore a broken leg and it's not necessarily it's not like your mind's yeah. broken it's just you need some more help I have to take thyroid pills every day. Otherwise, I get sick. So if you need medicine for your mental health to get better, take it. There's no shame in it anymore. Like, it used to be a thing. We'd be like, oh, they go to a shrink. It's improved a lot. Take your medicine, kids. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's hit me, too, because I always have a hard time taking meds. Everybody always gets mad at me. Like if I'm in pain, my mom will be like, did you take something for it? No, not yet. You need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. When I get up eventually, <laughs> then I'm up and doing that might, things. That might be I'm a woman like thing too. Moaning and not taking anything. Cause uh, th- my husband gets on me all the time. Like you have a headache. Have you taken any Tylenol or anything? No, <laughs> like, but to be fair, I have worse menstrual cramps than my headaches will be sometimes. And that's kind of dismissed still a lot of the time is being painful. So if I deal with the cramps, the headache is like, well, that's annoying. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and a lot of times women aren't really taken serious, like even at like gynecological visits, like. If someone's getting an IUD inserted, yeah, like at least numb the area. But a lot of doctors don't do that. Giving them any sort of numbing, see it all over TikTok, and I'm sitting there going, "I am not no. getting those." Gut me, please. I would rather you just take everything. <laughs> Put me under, take it all, sew me up. Yeah, have a great day. <laughs> I have one kid. I don't have to have another. I'm. I do this. I don't, I don't know if I want a man. <laughs> <laughs> I've read enough of these stories that it's like, do I really want one? Yeah. <laughs> Again, probably not. So I'm like, mm. yeah, there was a, and not in today's society. It was funny because I saw a TikTok the other day that was like single women or just women without kids being like, why are you trying to guilt me into having kids? Blah, blah. blah. And this one mom was like, I love my child, but I understand why people don't want them. <laughs> it's like, same. I get it. I get it. I would never, I would never take back nope. having my child. I would never just get rid of him. I would never take that back. I would never go, oh, I, I wish this never happened. I would never take that back, but yeah. I get it. Why some people may not want kids. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Parenting is difficult. Yeah. My husband said to me the other day, because we were talking about, oh like, I'm, I'm done having kids. I'm 38. I'm tapping out. It didn't happen that mm-hmm. we had more than one. I'm good with that, whatever. Like, I'm 
I'm done. And I was saying part of it is because since we're talking about people still having kids now as they get to be like 40, I said, I had a rough enough time at 30 trying to have my son like safely. They, you know, it's like um, blood, blood pressure through the roof, preeclampsia, and that was at 30. I'm like, I don't want to do that again at 40. Like, put me on birth control. I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> that sounds miserable. I don't want that. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, I can't. That's why I always just say, you know what? I'm good. I have one. I always wanted like a boy and a girl and this and that. I have my son. I'm happy. Just take it all. That way I don't have to deal with any of this. Yeah. And then especially with the way things are going nowadays and the way these stories are, you know, of rapists and the way, you know, Roe v. Wade and just everything. I'm like, you know what? Just take it. I don't want it I anymore. <laughs> yep. But of course they'll be like, oh, you're 35. You're, you still have time. I don't have time. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> you can Exactly. Yeah. I don't have I... time. Could you imagine 45 chasing after no. a two-year-old? I can't. Like, I really, I really applaud those who can. Like, good for them. I'm having a hard enough time at 35 chasing around a six-year-old with autism. I don't think at 45 I could do this no. again. And I, I, hard I pass. said too. Hard like, pass. I am going to be <laughs> old by the time my son graduates high school. Like, I'm going to be like 48. That's closing in too close to 50 for me for having a high school student. So like I'm, I'm good. And then you think about like having these children older too. At what age do you become an empty nester? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. We're getting into rental properties. <laughs> so if I can have one semi-close and be like, hey, as long as you get a job, you can pay you can pay a cheaper rent. Just go, go, go. get out. Just shoot. <laughs> Done Goodbye, this for child. 20 years. <laughs> I'm, I don't think I'd be one of those parents that's like, I don't want my child to ever leave my house. No. But then I'm also not going to be one of those, the opposite, where it's going to be like, my child, if they're ever having, you know, a rough time, never has the yeah. ability to come back. I was back at my parents' house after I left. Well, at their request. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> like, come back for a little bit. Then I said, okay. And then I left, you know, as soon as I could after that. Well, and then and then you hear that in a lot of these cases, too. And it's usually which it's it's like you get one, the one of two parents, either the mother that coddles them to death, that the, the son can do no wrong. And, you know, they end up dying in the mess or, you know, whatever. Or there's the opposite where they were like in this case, super neglectful. Just throwing them off into their parents, just saying, I'm I'm a bad parent and go. You know, they never had so it's like I try to be yeah. in the middle. 
try try to have a good environment. I try to be the healthy middle so that I don't breed breed a serial killer. Yeah. We don't want that. Please and my boy you. is very sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's like yes. toughen up, kid. But it's still having to be nice about it. We're like, well, I'm glad you can share your feelings with me on that. Uh, you're still going to do it anyway. <laughs> you're still going to yeah. clean. I'm sorry. You're still going to take that yeah. shower. <laughs> you're still going to put your yeah. socks on. You're still going to go to school. <laughs> and no, you can't have that second donut after you just ate one. We're going to take a break from sugar. Or like or like mine, no, you must put the jacket on. I don't care if you don't want to wear it. Then you'll put on a sweatshirt. Okay, pick one. Which one is it? Because you're getting one of them. <laughs> Though there was that genius mom. I think I sent you the TikTok too. Her son loves Pokemon. So she bought a whole bunch of Pokemon patches and was putting it on his clothes he didn't want to wear. Just to get yeah. him to wear them. That's pretty smart. See, and with him having autism, it it becomes difficult and it becomes like a fight. Like if I try to put, like just go, okay, this is what you're wearing today. It becomes an issue where he won't get dressed, won't leave. So I've gotten it to where I'll pick out like a jacket and a sweatshirt and then I'll hold them both up. Okay, choose. Your choice. Yep. And then he goes, I want that one. And then he'll put it on. Whereas if I didn't give him that choice, he would not have put it on. So we're just going with it. (laughs) Kids like a choice. We cleaned. Trying to clean a seven-year-old's bedroom and get rid of toys that he maybe hasn't played with in a while. I mean, we got rid of two garbage bags. But still, there was a lot of, okay, you haven't played with this in a very long time. Do you think we can get rid of it? And, you know, we did the thing where you, like, take everything out and sort. And it's kind of funny because I was like, okay, which drawer do you want this category of stuff in? Where do you want it? So we put it in place. Okay, where do you want this one now? It's like, now you know where all your things go because you chose. So make sure you put them back where you chose them to be. And he did. He got a, He's got those little plastic green army men. He got them out last night. He was playing with them. He put them back in the drawer they were supposed to go into. I was amazed. <laughs> Shocking. <sighs> we went on a tangent, but we did go on was, a tangent. But that is okay. Well, thank you for listening, everybody, and watch out for the crazies out there. Can't even talk today. Watch out for the crazies out there. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.